What if I told you that I could build a really effective dual wielding hexblade warlock? What if I told you that this build can often out damage even that famous polearm master, great weapon master, devil sight and darkness using hexblade that gets a little overused at a lot of D&D tables? Would you believe me? I certainly would not have until I crunched the numbers. Welcome to D4. Hey everybody, so here at D4, each week we take a deep dive into character builds for our favorite role-playing games. Usually D&D, sometimes Baldur's Gate, even Pathfinder in the past. Anyways, I like to crunch numbers about the builds, I like to theorycraft about them, not so that I can tell you the right way or the best way to play a character, but to explore one potential way to build something that is both really fun but also really powerful. So if you enjoy creating characters for your favorite role-playing games, almost as much as you enjoy playing the actual game itself, or if you're just looking for tips or ideas on how to build something that you're thinking about playing, then welcome home. This is where you belong, and I'm so glad you're here, so thank you for being here. My name's Colby. If you like what you see, I would appreciate it if you'd consider joining the channel as a member. There's a little button down there that says join. If you click on it, it'll tell you about all the little perks that you can get, everything from uh, you know access to a write-up cheat sheet to help you recreate this character yourself in-game, to access to the D4 Discord server, as well as access to the monthly hangouts that we do for certain members where we field questions from the audience and generally just kind of hang out and laugh and have a good time. Anyways, it's a great way to support the channel financially and I just wanted to give a huge shout out and thank you to my channel members. Could not do this without you guys and everybody else, even if you can't join or don't really want to join, that's fine. Being here, watching, liking, subscribing, commenting, these are all also great ways to support the channel. So thank you just for being here. Thank you. You know what I love? I love it when I learn something new about how the rules in D&D 5e work. I mean, you might think that after playing this game for at least a decade and having spent over three years now as a D&D content creator focused on character optimization, that learning something new would not happen all that often. But honestly, it still happens all the time. And I'm not ashamed to admit it, there can be a lot of nuances and not so easily understood hidden implications in the way the rules of this game are worded. Here's my favorite latest example. The interaction between the Hexblade Warlock's Hex Warrior feature and the Pact of the Blade boon. Hex Warrior, as many of you know, tells us that we can channel our will into a single non-two-handed weapon and thereafter use our charisma modifier for our plus to hit and damage with that weapon. Okay, everyone knows that. It also tells us that if we take the Pact of the Blade boon later at Warlock level 3, right, this benefit of attacking with our charisma modifier extends to every packed weapon we conjure via Pact of the Blade, no matter the weapon's type. Until very recently, I always just kind of assumed that this meant that we could now use a two-handed weapon to attack with our charisma, basically. That's the only thing I ever used that specific feature for anyways. But what I didn't really understand, and I bet a lot of you didn't really understand this either. No, not you. You knew this already, of course, duh. I'm talking about everybody else. But yeah, didn't understand until very recently, that is, thanks to a conversation I had on our Discord server with a channel member, uh, Just The Craft, big shout out to them, is that because of this wording, Technically, we would then be allowed to dual-wield weapons using our Charisma modifier for our plus to hit and damage with both 
of those weapons. Again, Hex Warrior says that when you get Pact of the Blade, you can extend this benefit, the benefit of using your charisma for weapon attacks, to every Pact weapon you conjure with that, the Pact of the Blade feature. There's nothing in there that says the weapon you use this benefit for via your Hex Warrior feature, where you're channeling your will into a weapon, has to be the same weapon as your Pact weapon. They could be, they don't have to be. And if they're not the same weapon, that same charisma attacking benefit is extended to your packed weapon as well. I don't know. I, I always knew that you could have both a packed weapon and a hex weapon, but for some reason, I just never made the connection that both weapons would be able to use your charisma for attacking for some reason. And just in case you doubt me, here is a tweet by Jeremy Crawford confirming that understanding. Quote, the hex warrior feature is intentionally worded to extend its benefit to two potential weapons the weapon you touch, and a packed weapon you conjure. So, of course, the minute I realized this, I had to put dual-wielding Hexblade at the very top of my to-do list because it sounded fun and cool and probably not as good as a polearm master, great weapon master using Warlock, right? But wouldn't it be fun to try and see if it could at least compete with that Hexblade damage-wise? Imagine my great surprise and delight when I realized that, potentially, it can outpace that old optimizers standby for damage. Yeah, I'm talking about the build I did in my very first video ever, right? The Hexblade. So today, we are finally updating that old clunker. Yes, it is finally time for D&D build number 153, Hexblade 2.0. And as an aside, I know I've kind of given myself a rule to not do more than one Hexblade a quarter, and I just used the subclass a couple of weeks ago in my uh, Shadowblade Monk build, but hear me out. Before that build, I hadn't used Hexblade for almost a year, the uh, Hexblade Bladesinger, right? And that was really only a dip into Hexblade. The last time I did a build that was mostly Hexblade was, I think, the second ever team-up uh, two-build combo that I did over three years ago, the yin-yang builds, which coincidentally uh, my friend Dallin and I demonstrated with great efficiency in a one-shot uh, that you can watch here. And I think that is my fifth card already. Just like that, I am out of cards. Anyways, it feels like doing a mostly Hexblade build is actually long overdue. So let's do it. First, Huge thank you to my good friend Randall Hampton for the fantastic artwork he created for this character. He does this every week. He's such a great artist. If you'd be interested in following him to check out the other stuff that he's done, or even potentially commission him to do some art for your character, or even your entire party, I will put links in the video description as always on how to do so. You can also connect with him, channel members, um, in my Discord server, and see some of the other stuff he's created there. And of course, before we jump into the build, raise your hand if you like nerdy t-shirts. Me. Yeah, if you guys know anything about me, other than that I like making D&D characters, it's that I like wearing nerdy t-shirts, right? Like this awesome Witcher 1, for example. And I have been waiting for a t-shirt company out there to recognize my affinity for their product and ask me to sponsor a video for them, and that day has finally arrived. And they just so happen to be a sponsor that I already know and love. So you guys remember Obvious Mimic, I hope, the company that uh, specializes in solo D&D play. I've talked about a couple of their solo play adventures uh, in videos before, The Wolves of Langston and The Crystals of Zaleth, if you remember. Well, 
Obvious Mimic has gone and launched a t-shirt company, and their t-shirts are so awesome. They're all about letting you proudly display your love of all things D&D with a couple of fantastic t-shirt collections. You've got the Wish You Were Here collection that basically is filled with t-shirts that look like something that you would maybe purchase from like a souvenir shop on the streets of your favorite Sword Coast destination, from Icewind Dale to the Underdark. I've actually ordered the Waterdeep one and the Neverwinter one, and I cannot wait to show them off. I really wish they would have arrived in time for the recording here, but they'll be here soon, so watch out for them in future videos, actually. But then there's also the Side Hustles collection that they've come out with, and these are actually my favorite of the two collections because they, like, take an iconic D&D monster and kind of turn it into the name of well, a side hustle business. There's the Not A Mimic Storage Facility Company or the Mind Flayer Hypnotherapy Practice. So awesome. I am eagerly awaiting my merch from the Red Dragon Lodge, my favorite place to get some great barbecue, and the Owlbear Ridge Bed and Breakfast. Just the coziest spot ever for a weekend getaway. Anyways, the t-shirts all come in a variety of fantastic colors and sizes. They are affordable and not only will purchasing them let you tout your nerd cred like never before while looking incredibly chic and stylish, but it will also be supporting a really fantastic D&D loving company that's dedicated to bringing you great D&D related content. So please go check them out. In the video description, I've got links to the two t-shirt collections. Go check them out. But then at checkout, if you use the discount code ColbyShirts, all one word, right, you will save 10% off of your entire order. So please go buy something. These shirts freaking rock. I'm confident that you will love them as much as I am going to love them. And again, you're going to see me wearing them soon. Anyway, huge thanks to Obvious Mimic. I really love what you guys do. All right, let's jump into the build. At level one, for our starting class, we're actually not starting fighter, if you can believe it. Although, if I were playing this character in-game, I probably would. <laughs> I'll talk about it later, but no. For now, let's just jump right into Warlock and beeline to our most important Warlock abilities. As for race, yeah, we're going with Old Reliable here, Custom Lineage. There's a feat that I really, really want, and an ability score that I really want to start with at an 18, and Custom Lineage is the only way to get both of those things. That said, I'm really tempted to go Bugbear here, actually. Uh, not so much for the extra burst damage on round one. We're going to build this one for sustained damage, DPR. Though, admittedly, the Bugbear's extra burst damage potential is nice, but more I'm interested in the extra reach that they can get. But I will get into why that's interesting to me a little bit later as well. As for the free feat that we get by going Custom Lineage, I'm going to take Telekinetic. This is such a fantastic feat. First off, it's a half feat, giving us a plus one uh, for us to our charisma here. And then it also lets us learn the Mage Hand cantrip that we can cast without verbal or somatic components, and it's invisible for us. But best of all, Telekinetic lets us use our bonus action as often as we want to try and move a creature five feet if they fail a strength saving throw. I'll get into why we want this feat a little later on too. For our starting abilities, I'm assuming point by as always and say let's go with a 15 charisma and then take plus two from custom lineage and plus one from the feet there so we start with an 18 right then a 15 constitution and a 14 dexterity yeah that odd numbered constitution score is annoying but we'll deal with it don't worry as for starting equipment i'm gonna say let's go with the gold buy route as usual and grab some scale mail and then 
well, we're going to want two clubs or two light hammers, at least eventually. We don't necessarily need them right now, but we'll want them later. For now, feel free to start off with like a war hammer or a long sword or something. War hammer might be more thematically appropriate for this character. But yes, eventually two light bludgeoning damage weapons. And frankly, I love the idea of dual wielding light hammers here. It's just not a very common image that you see in fantasy characters in D&D, but it feels super cool. It's like double Thor. Oh, come on, Thor. Thor Arthur, I guess. Right at level one, warlocks get their subclass, right? Their otherworldly patron, and yes, as I've said, we're going Hexblade. And yeah, with Hexblade, your weapon really plays a more important role in your character's story than it does for most other classes. So make sure you put some good time and thought into where this weapon came from. What otherworldly being is being channeled through it? What's your relationship? with this hammer like. Sounds like you had a pretty special and intimate relationship with this hammer. And that losing it was almost comparable to losing a loved one. (laughs) That's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) As a Hexblade then, we get a couple of fantastic features. First of all, and most importantly for us, Hex Warrior, which gives us proficiency with medium armor, shields, and martial weapons. Nice. But then, yes, tells us that after a long rest, we can touch a weapon and turn it into our hex weapon. Those are my words, not Wizards of the Coast, right? Though I think in D&D Beyond, it lets you check a box to indicate if a weapon is your hex weapon, so yeah. But then when you attack with that weapon, you can use your charisma for the plus to hit and damage as we've discussed. Very nice, very sad, uh, single ability score dependent, right? And sad in this game is super happy. We also get Hexblade's Curse, which can provide a nice extra bit of damage on a single target, for now anyways. Uh, Once per short rest with Hexblade's Curse, we can use a bonus action to curse an enemy and thereafter do an extra bit of damage every time we damage them, equal to our proficiency bonus. What's more, we crit against them here on a 19 or a 20. Nice. And when our cursed target dies, we heal a number of hit points equal to our Warlock level plus our Charisma modifier. Sweet. As for the spells that we get at Warlock 1, take Eldritch Blast, of course, you're a warlock. And then X-Blades get access to the shield spell because they weren't powerful enough, apparently. So yeah, grab that. And then I'd probably get Armor of Agathis for some nice extra defense, uh, granting both temporary hit points and returning damage to your melee attacker if you have any of those temporary hit points left when you get hit, right? But then yeah, I probably would get Hex and use our concentration on it for now, at least, letting us do an extra D6 of damage every time we hit an enemy, though it heavily taxes our bonus action for doing so. At the moment, we're better off, say, using like a two-handed weapon or maybe a D8 weapon and a shield and applying hex with our bonus action rather than trying to dual wield since only one of our weapons at the moment would be able to use our charisma modifier for attack purposes, right? Okay, at level two, we get Eldritch Invocations, which I love. Just awesome, fancy ways to improve spells and give us some nice utility and versatility. And I'm going to say let's grab Eldritch Mind first and foremost, which gives us advantage on concentration checks. Very nice, especially for those of us who do not have constitution saving throw proficiency. Could have started fighter. As for the second invocation, I'm just going to say pick your favorite, knowing that we're going to be replacing it next level, which we can do every time we gain a level in Warlock, right? So yes, at level three, we get our Pact Boon, and as I've said, we're going with Pact of the Blade. To quickly recap, this lets us use our action to summon or create a Pact weapon in our hand. It's magical for the purpose of overcoming resistance, and yes, while it can 
can be the same weapon as our hex weapon, it doesn't have to be. And since we're a hexblade, the benefit of attacking with our charisma is extended to this packed weapon, even if it's a different weapon than our hex weapon. So now we've got two light hammers or clubs and can dual wield them if we want using our charisma modifier for each. Fantastic. What's more, with Pact of the Blade, we now qualify for the improved Pact Weapon Invocation, so drop that second invocation you took last level and exchange it for improved Pact Weapon now. This tells us that our Pact Weapon gets a plus one to hit and damage, and turns into a spell focus for us, letting us largely ignore the rule against casting with our hands full. Fantastic. Now, one unfortunate thing here is this. This plus one applies only to our Pact Weapon, right? And since that's different for us, anyways, than our Hex Weapon, Weapon, yeah, it means that we're only going to get that plus one on one of our weapons. You might get another magic weapon before too long anyway, so might not be a big deal. But when I crunch numbers, just know that when we get to the Thirsting Blade invocation, right, we'll be using our action to make two attacks with a plus one, but then our bonus action attack will not get that plus one benefit. Okay, we get second level Warlock spells here, and while Misty Step, Hold Person, Invisibility, and others are all worth considering and fantastic, the one we are going to focus on is a favorite and oft-used one. Yes, I'm talking about Cloud of Daggers. Man, this spell is so good. I'm starting to worry that I might be using it a little too often. So you cast Cloud of Daggers with your action. It requires our concentration, and then it creates a five-foot cube of spinning blades that deal damage to a creature both when they enter the space for the first time on a turn and when they start their turn in that Cloud of Dagger space, right? Yes, this means that it can deal damage multiple times around, potentially, if you have a good way of forcing an enemy into the area of effect, similar to spells that have the same wording, like Moonbeam and Spirit Guardians, please look it up in the Sage Advice Compendium if you don't think that's correct, or feel free to argue about it in the comments as always. <laughs> Anyways, the best thing about this spell is that it allows for no saving throw against the damage. If they enter the area or start their turn there, they just take the damage, unless they're like immune to slashing damage or something. It's 4d4 damage plus 2d4 more for every level you upcast it. Now, to be fair, it's not a perfect spell or anything. I mean, it's a really small AoE, right? And once you place it, it can't be moved. But we will do our very best to make it as effective as possible and talk about potential weaknesses too when we crunch the numbers. Level four, we get an ability score increase or feat and we are not going to bump charisma, not yet at least, because we have more important things to do first. Namely, take the crusher feat, yes. Crusher. So good. It bumps, for us, our constitution by one, so now we have a nice even 16 and can start sleeping at night again. <laughs> Phew. <laughs> Phew. My... My daughter, my second oldest daughter, used to say that instead of few, for some reason, she would say few. And we just thought it was so adorable that uh, that's what we all say in my family now whenever we want to breathe a sigh of relief. Phew. And then tells us that once per turn, when we hit an enemy with bludgeoning damage, we can move them five feet to an unoccupied space, which coincidentally could even be up in the air, as we've played around with a few times in other builds that I don't have cards to link to. <laughs> yeah, 
check out the catapult as long as they're no more than one size larger than us right so we're limited to large creatures or smaller here for now anyways so now we've got a great way to push enemies into that cloud of daggers along with telekinetic don't forget and that is super happy also don't forget that with crusher when you get a critical hit with bludgeoning damage all attack rolls against the creature are made with advantage until the start of your next turn yeah even attacks made by your allies against that target right super solid feat at level five we get a third invocation and we of course are going to take thirsting blade which tells us that when we take the attack action with our packed weapon specifically we can attack twice with it so basically extra attack at least for our purposes some of you may be wondering if we should swap out eldritch mind here for eldritch smite and i would say i don't think so eldritch smite is awesome but I think I'd rather keep Eldritch Mind, especially without Constitution saving throw proficiency. Holding on to that concentration for Cloud of Daggers is way more important than potentially getting a little extra burst damage via a smite once in a while, in my opinion. And we also get third level spells here, and I'm gonna say PYF. Pick your favorite. Pick your favorite for third level spells? Like the most important spell level for most casters in D&D 5e? Yeah. I mean, Counterspell and Fear and Hypnotic Pattern and Fly and more are all amazing and worth taking, but like, Spirit Shroud isn't going to come close to competing for damage with Cloud of Daggers here, as crazy as that may sound. Assuming, of course, that everything goes perfectly in combat for us, which, yeah, I mean, the best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry, so feel free to grab Spirit Shroud to maybe use it as a concentration damage backup. But I'm planning on using Cloud of Daggers for concentration when I crunch the numbers, which will do 6d4 damage as a third level spell. So go ahead and pick your favorites here and have fun throwing down a heavy control spell once in a while or being able to fly or counterspell when you need to, etc. At level six, you know, nothing is more indicative to me of how rarely I've actually taken a build to Hexblade level six as this feature. Because whenever I get to it, I kind of always go, wait, What's this feature again? Oh yeah, it's pretty lame. <laughs> I mean, it's not horrible. It's actually pretty good. It's just, I don't know, janky? Kind of hard to quantify? It tells us that when we kill a humanoid, specifically, we can raise a specter from its corpse that will obey and fight for us, rolling its own initiative and just obeying our verbal commands. No action or bonus action required by us. It lasts until it dies or we take a long rest, so potentially it can add to our sustained damage per round, I guess. I just feel a little uncomfortable with that assumption. If it worked on any creature, not just humanoids, and like, especially if we could do it proficiency bonus times per day or something, it would be a little easier to assume that. But I don't know if you're gonna be fighting humanoids or if we will get the killing blow on one for that matter. Or even if we manage to do that, I don't know if it's gonna be alive for every fight that you have for the rest of the day. Most likely it won't be. I didn't assume that we had our Spectre active when I did that first Hexblade build, so I guess if I wanna compare apples to apples, I'm not gonna assume that we have it here either. But yeah, I mean, when we have it up, it's not a bad little damage bump. It gets extra temporary hit points equal to half our Warlock level and a bonus to hit equal to our Charisma modifier, so that means it has a plus eight to hit right now. Pretty nice. Same with us when we're using our plus one packed weapon, right? And then it hits for 3d6 damage. But it does have sunlight sensitivity, which can be annoying, and only a 12 armor class with 
basically 25 hit points at the moment so when we do have it it'll probably only be around for a fight maybe two it does have a lot of damage resistances even some damage and condition immunities and i mean hey if your enemies are focusing on attacking it instead of you and your other party members that's a win so yeah nice ability when we can use it frustrating to me and how hard it is to predict if we actually will be able to when i'm doing my damage reports which at level six is right now so here's what combat looks like for us at this level on round one we're casting cloud of daggers on top of our target and running up to be like five feet away from them maybe even throw up hexblade's curse on them as a bonus action if you want i'm not going to assume that we have since it's not really like sustainable damage at the moment lasting only for one enemy not an entire combat encounter necessarily but if you're using it, don't forget that the extra damage from it will apply to the Cloud of Daggers damage. It doesn't have to be a hit or an attack to trigger that curse damage, right? Any damage roll works. Now, on the enemy's turn, they're going to take 64 Cloud of Daggers damage, no save, doesn't matter what their armor class is, and then ideally they will move out of the Cloud of Daggers and up to us to attack us, right? On our turn then, we'll make three hammer or club attacks against them, two with our packed weapon and one with our hex weapon. On the first hit we land, we will apply Crusher to move them back into Cloud of Daggers, doing another 6d4 damage. Then we move up and finish our attacks, if we push them with the first or second one, anyways. But then moving five feet back away, right, at the end of our turn, so that the process can repeat. Now, Yes, that means we'll be provoking an opportunity attack if they have their reaction available. And this is the main reason why I said at the beginning to consider going bugbear as your race. It would mean that we would only have a plus three to our charisma modifier right now because we would have missed out on the telekinetic feat, right? And yeah, no telekinesis. But it would mean that we could attack them from reach and not worry about having to like move up, attack, then move away, right? Bugbears would make the build a little better burst damage dealers too, getting that extra 2d6 in damage on on their attacks during the first round, though that would mean no Cloud of Daggers on round one, so you might want to think about that. And yeah, they get other fun features too, so not a bad option at all. Anyways, if we have our Spectre up, we can have them make attacks too, but again, I'm not assuming we do, but all told, if all goes according to plan, the enemy would take 12d4 damage from Cloud of Daggers over the course of the round, right, regardless of their armor class or saving throw, plus 3d4 from our weapon attacks, those light hammers only do a d4, plus 10 from our charisma modifier and plus one packed weapon, which we're making two attacks with. Remember, the bonus action attack, because we don't have two weapon fighting, is not applying our charisma modifier to its damage. For a grand total of 15d4 plus 10. And so, against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average here do 48 damage per round, and against a 15 armor class, it would be just slightly less, 44 DPR. And compared to other sustained DPR builds that I have done to date, uh, check the video description as always to see a link to the graphs and the spreadsheets where I make these comparisons. That's pretty fantastic. Call it top half of tier one and beating out, yes, even the original Hexblade build at all but the very lowest armor classes. That said, let's be clear here. These numbers are great, but they are a little more situational than, say, just putting darkness on yourself and killing everything with your glaive, right? Cloud of Daggers can be fantastic, but again, it's also a small area of effect that doesn't move. And sure, you can push enemies into it, but they might be more than five feet away from it when you attack them. Or they might be huge enemies, right? Because remember, Crusher only works against enemies who are one size larger than us. This is the main reason why I wanted to take 
telekinetic as our free feet. It costs our bonus action, but it lets us move any creature, regardless of size, five feet with that bonus action, provided they fail a saving throw. My hope is that between this and the five feet we can move them with Crusher, that they don't get to save against, by the way, we just have to hit them, we will be able to get an enemy into that cloud once per turn, and yes, in case it wasn't clear, it's absolutely worth giving up our bonus action offhand attack to use telekinesis if that's going to be the difference between getting them into Cloud of Daggers or not, as the majority of the damage that we're doing here comes from the double application of that spell every round, right? At level 7, we get a fourth invocation, and at this level, sure, feel free to take Eldritch Smite to add what would be 5d8 of extra damage on a weapon attack at this level if we spent a Warlock spell slot on it, right? Knocking them prone to boot, meaning we'd have advantage on subsequent attacks, at least until they stood up. You might want to consider Repelling Blast instead. This lets us push an enemy up to 10 feet away from us with each beam of Eldritch Blast we land on them, and Eldritch Blast has been firing two beams since level five, right? This is another really great potential way to move enemies if they're further than five or ten feet away from our cloud of daggers. And best of all, there's no size restriction on this movement or saving throw to resist it. You just have to hit them. So yeah, you might even consider grabbing this in lieu of Eldritch Mind clear back at level two, especially if you started at fighter one. We do get fourth level warlock spells here too, and yeah, this is usually a fantastic level to get on a hexblade because that means we get to start using Shadow of Moil, which just heavily obscures you to get advantage on our attacks, right? Instead of using Darkness and Devil Sight, which can be a big fat pain for everyone at your table. But on this build, yeah, we'd still rather be concentrating on Cloud of Daggers. So take Shadow of Moil if you want, or Banishment or Dimension Door. Ralatham's Psychic Lance can be fun, both for damage and to incapacitate an enemy. But yeah, nothing here that I'm going to assume we're using in combat. So again, PYF. At level 8, we get another ability score increase or feat, and this time, yes, I am going to bump Charisma, capping it now at 20, which is fantastic. And then at level 9, we get a fifth invocation, and yeah, if you didn't take Eldritch Blast at level 7, for sure grab it here. If you did, then this is the time for Eldritch Smite, especially since Warlocks get fifth level spells now, which means we could smite if we burned a spell slot on it for 6d8 damage. It's not capped at 5d8 like Divine Smite is, right? But again, while Hold Monster is amazing and Synaptic Static is a favorite for both damage and a fantastic debuff, nothing beats a fifth level Cloud of Dagger spell for us when it comes to sustained damage per round. So again, pick your favorite. Okay, at level nine, it is time for our next damage report. Since last check, the only real bumps to our damage have come in the form of an increase to our charisma and the scaling of Cloud of Daggers. But make no mistake, that is significant. Over the course of a round, an enemy would now potentially be taking 20d4 of damage from just Cloud of Daggers. And we've picked up lots of nice movement, burst damage, and potentially utility or control-focused options as well. We are living our best Hexblade life right now. And so, against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average here do 72 damage per round, and against a 16 AC, it would be 67 DPR. And compared to other sustained DPR builds that I've done to date at this level, we're very near the top with these numbers. In fact, we're beating out everyone but the recent uh, Moonsinger, currently sitting at the number one spot, once we get to a mere 16 enemy armor class and above. Yikes. But yes, again, these numbers are best case scenario, right? And that feels appropriate to me. It's amazing when it works, 
but it won't always work perfectly. I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm kind of glad for that. Here's hoping that your DM doesn't just start flooding your combat encounters with nothing but huge enemies to try and shut down your build. DMs, please don't do this. Once in a while, yes, of course, keep them on their toes. Make them get creative. But most of the time, just let your players shine. Thanks. At level 10, we get, as a Hexblade, Armor of Hexes. And this is a pretty neat little feature, if limited in use at the moment especially. It tells us that if our Hexblade cursed target hits us with an attack, we can use our reaction to roll a d6, and then if we get a four or higher, so 50% chance, the attack misses instead, regardless of its roll. Might be especially nice if we get crit, or if we're out of spell slots for shield, or if the roll was so high that shield wouldn't have helped anyways, right? But again, only a 50% success chance and only works on our cursed target, so limited functionality for sure. Nice when we really need it though. At level 11, we get a third spell slot per short rest, and that's worth mentioning, right? It's so good. More chances to smite, or shield, or maybe like misty step so that you can position yourself best to move the next enemy into cloud of daggers. And yeah, three fifth level spell slots per short rest. That's pretty awesome. But then we also get our mystic arcanum, our sixth level mystic arcanum. Uh, yeah, so we get six level spells here, but unfortunately for warlocks, these are not spell slots, which means no more upcasting on cloud of daggers. Instead, we get a sixth level mystic arcanum spell, which lets us just pick a sixth level warlock spell and then tells us that we can only use it once per day. I really get why they wouldn't just want us to have three sixth level spell slots now, but I do wish that we'd maybe just get like a sixth level spell slot here that would reset on a short rest like most full spellcasters, right? So that we could continue to upcast lower level spells if we wanted to. Alas. As for the spell that we should choose here, I mean, I like Scatter for this build as it just lets you move a bunch of creatures all over the battlefield. They get to save against it, but it's a wisdom save instead of strength, like telekinetic, right? And there's no size restrictions and you can move enemies up to 120 feet. Pretty amazing to get just about anyone into your cloud of daggers. But it's just hard to imagine taking anything other than mass suggestion here, really. For some pretty great combat encounter ending power, letting you force up to 12 enemies to make a wisdom save, or they just have to follow your suggestion that they walk away from the battlefield for whatever conceivable reason you might come up with. And it doesn't require concentration, but it lasts for 24 hours. So now I've got to know how many of you out there have used this spell only to have an enemy or enemies return to fight you once the 24 hours were up. I bet that makes a killer story. And I want to hear about it in the comments, please. At level 12, we get another ability score increase or feat, and you should seriously take resilient constitution here. We need to hold on to our concentration, no question. But I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm exploring what's possible damage-wise, and so I'm going with that not super amazing, but actually pretty decent for this build feat, dual wielder. This just lets you do two weapon fighting with non-light weapons, right? And see, the thing is, the only light melee weapons that do bludgeoning damage are clubs and light hammers, as we've discussed, and both of those are only a d4 of damage, right? Plus, I think it's a lot harder to find amazing magic weapons that are clubs or light hammers. But with this, we could be dual-wielding freaking warhammers. And come on. That's just so much cooler. Mjolnir is totally a warhammer. It's not a light hammer. Mjolnir, AKA meow meow. <laughs> Don't care what you say, I liked the first Thor movie. I did, and I'm not ashamed. Second Thor movie, not so much. 
Third one, best Marvel movie ever. Fourth one, big disappointment. And using two D8 weapons will raise our average damage by about six per round. It's not amazing, but it's not nothing. Plus, this feat does raise our armor class by one if we're dual wielding. So all in all, it's a solid pick here, I think. We do get a sixth invocation at this level as well, and we're totally going with Life Drinker, which is just so amazing. It basically doubles the damage bonus from our Charisma modifier on our attacks, but yeah, unfortunately, only on attacks with our Pact weapon, not our Hex weapon. One more benefit to making them one and the same, right? Still, an extra 10 damage per round potentially, plus the bump from Dual Wielder, makes Warlock 12 a really fantastic level for us. At level 13, we get our 7th level, Level Mystic Arcanum spell. And I'm a little torn here because on the one hand, it would be really fun to play with Crown of Stars. I kind of love this spell. We cast it and it just puts like seven motes of light orbiting around our head that last for an hour. Afterwards, we can use a bonus action to send one of those motes flying towards an enemy, making a spell attack and dealing 4d12 damage if we hit. Now that's way more damage than an offhand weapon attack, right? But I mean, I just took dual wielder and we only get one seventh level spell slot per day. So sustainable for one combat encounter, sure. Maybe two if they happen within an hour, but ah, I mean, I guess we could have taken Resilient Constitution last level instead and then grab a Maul here, right? Using our bonus action for Crown of Stars. But it feels a little late in the game to be switching tactics like that. If we did this, I'd be wanting Great Weapon Master. But if I took Great Weapon Master, I'd be turning it off at super low enemy armor class to make sure we got the hit so that we could push him into Clouded Daggers. It just feels like a totally different build all of a sudden. And I mean, let's be honest, Force Cage is the better spell choice here anyways, right? Wall of Force-like control, but without the pesky concentration requirement. Yeah, stay the course. We're going double Thor, no regrets. Okay, time for our level 13 damage report. Since last check, we've seen some nice bumps to our damage, not via Cloud of Daggers, unfortunately, since that stopped scaling for us, but via the Dual Wielder Feet and Life Drinker. Arguably, best of all, we've got some incredibly potent control options now as well that we don't even have to sacrifice our concentration to enjoy. And even a nice bump to our survivability to boot. And so against an enemy here with a 10 armor class, we would do on average 87 damage per round. And against a 17 AC, it would be 79 DPR. And unfortunately, that does mean we've slipped just a skosh compared to other sustained damage builds that I've done to date at this level, as lots of them have maybe scaled a bit better with higher level spell slots and things like that. We're near the bottom of tier one now, but still outpacing most builds at the higher enemy armor classes, so still in a great place, no question. Okay, at level 14, we get the Hexblade Capstone, and it's an incredible one. Master of Hexes. This lets us transfer our Hexblade's curse to a different enemy when the first one dies. The only drawback is that we don't get the self-heal when we transfer it like this, but that is totally worth it. So now it has become part of our sustained damage. Sure, it only lasts for a minute still, but it does reset on a short rest. So we will probably be using this just about every combat encounter, unless you have a really mean DM who never lets you rest. Now, you might be wondering if you have to use a bonus action to still transfer the curse when a target dies. I've been looking for a response to that question from Jeremy Crawford and all over the internet. The verdict seems to be a bit mixed, but most people seem to think that you do not have to use a bonus action to transfer it once the initial target dies, and 
I tend to agree with them. Using it the first time absolutely requires a bonus action, but the wording for Master of Hexes here simply says that when your current target dies, you can transfer the curse to another target within 30 feet as long as you're not incapacitated. Some would argue that the inherent ability of this curse is that it requires a bonus action to use, right? So bonus action still applies. But most argue, and I think I would too, that if it required your bonus action, it would say so. Just like, say, the hex spell specifies that when your target dies, you can use a bonus action to transfer it to somebody else, right? So yeah, assuming that we don't have to continue eating up our bonus action to move this to a different target, this ability is incredible. It applies an extra six flat damage every time we damage an enemy, including the potentially two times per round that they take Cloud of Daggers damage. That's a lot of extra damage, and we could now do it against every enemy for at least one entire combat encounter per short rest. So yes, I'll be adding it to our damage report at level 17. At level 15, now that we've got the Hexblade Capstone... <laughs> Yeah, fine. I think I'm going to take some fighter levels. And yes, as I said at the very beginning, you might have wanted to consider starting fighter one here. Constitution saving throw proficiency, yes, but also heavy armor instead of medium, and the two-weapon fighting style right from the get-go would have improved our survivability and our concentration checks and our damage at the level six damage report, actually, but would have been worse at level nine because we would have fourth level spell slots instead of fifth. So yeah, if I were playing this character in game, I'd probably start fighter one. But if you didn't, I would definitely take fighter now. Sure, eighth and ninth level warlock spells are definitely enticing, but you guys know me. I would rather find ways to improve my sustained damage for every combat encounter than I would, you know, give myself the ability to do something amazing once per long rest. Even if that something is turning myself into an actual dragon via true polymorph or something. I don't know. I guess I'm boring. Feel free to stay Warlock here. You'll be just fine. But as for the rest of us, yes, as a Fighter 1, we get Second Wind, which lets us peel ourselves a little bit as a bonus action once per short rest. And then we get a Fighting Style. And yeah, isn't it weird that we've been dual wielding this entire time without the two-weapon fighting style? I know. Again, it's partly why I'd say I'd start Fighter 1. We could have taken a feat for that fighting style, of course, but every other feat or ability score increase outpaces the two-weapon fighting style for damage, so here we are. But now, we can finally feel like a true master of dual wielding, adding our charisma modifier even to our bonus action attack. At level 16, we'd be a fighter 2, and yes, that means action surge, and while this is kind of the go-to move for burst damage, sure, letting us once per short rest take two actions on our turn instead of one, I'm honestly more excited about having it so that I can cloud of daggers, action surge, then attack and push an enemy into the cloud right on round one. And yeah, again, there's a really strong argument for getting this fighter two, right, much earlier, say right after you get extra attack, uh, thirsting blade at warlock five, right? So if we start a fighter one, we're talking character level seven to go fighter two, right? I honestly think that's probably, again, what I'm doing if I'm playing this character in-game. At level 17, we would be a fighter 3 then, and that means we get our martial archetype, our fighter subclass, and you know what we're doing. We're taking Rune Knight to better deal with those pesky, huge creatures. So yeah, Rune Knight's probably my favorite fighter subclass because everything they get at level 3 is just incredible. First up, they get Rune Carver, right, which lets us choose two runes to like carve into our armor or weapons that do cool things once per short rest. I'd go with Fire Rune, first of all, so that we can throw out fiery chains when we hit an enemy with a weapon attack, dealing an extra 2d6 of fire damage, and then forcing the enemy to make a strength save or be restrained for one minute. I mean, come on. Is there anything better than shackling a target 
with fiery chains while they're inside a whirling cloud of spinning blades that they now are stuck in, I submit that there is not. If, if you can pull this off, just leave them there if they fail their save to get out of the chains and just go focus on killing someone else. They'll probably be dead before they get a chance to break out of the chains anyways. So awesome. As for the second rune, yeah, it's gotta be cloud rune. It's the best. It lets you redirect any attack made by any creature within 30 feet to instead hit any other creature of your choice within 30 feet, and it's just so good. But of course, the main reason we wanted Rune Knight was for the Giant Smite feature, which lets you proficiency bonus times per day. Use your bonus action to grow to large size, dealing an extra d6 of damage once per turn, but also, importantly, use the Crusher feat now on huge creatures or smaller, right? And yeah, you might have wanted to do this right after Fighter 2 back at character level 8. It would have slowed down our spell slot progression, made those damage report numbers look slightly worse, kept us from capping our charisma modifier until later, but if you're running into lots of huge enemies especially, it's absolutely the way to go. Plus, it's just really fun. And so, for our final damage report, we've seen some decent bumps actually since last check, and I love it when a build continues to scale even into late game. First up, we get to add 6 flat damage from Hexblade's curse now, even on our Cloud of Daggers damage, which really adds up. We also got a bump from 2-up in fighting, and even a little d6 of damage once per turn from Giant's Might. We've grabbed some nice defensive or support capabilities, burst damage and control capabilities, utility to make our core mechanic work a little more reliably, and even action surge so that we can be firing on all cylinders right on round 1. It is perfection. And so, against an enemy with a 10 armor class here, we would on average do 125 damage per round, and against an 18 AC it would be 112 DPR. And compared to other sustained damage builds that I've done to date at this level, that puts us kinda smack dab in the middle of tier 1. We hit so dang hard, and we have so many great control and defensive and burst damage capabilities. This build is really good. No surprise, it's a Hexblade. So let's dive into some final thoughts here. The tier score for this build, if you take the damage that they do at each enemy armor class, at each of the four damage reports that we calculate for and just average it all into one big number, we end up with a 71. And this puts us kind of in the upper half of tier one, right between the Star's Druid and the Sorlock Cheese Grater, actually, speaking of warlocks who like to push their enemies around. So yes, to my great delight and surprise, when I first started crunching the numbers for this build, in the end, it very often out-damages that Hexblade 1.0 build, the Pamlock. Now, as I've said, the damage here is arguably a little less reliable. Then again, speaking from experience, it's not like the damage that we got with that build was always super reliable either. It was so heavily dependent, especially at mid and higher enemy armor classes, on the enemy not being able to see you in your Magical Darkness or Shadow of Moil. And yeah, I mean, it's just as easy for a DM to start giving all their enemies blind sight or true sight as it is for them to start just filling every combat encounter with huge enemies, right? Maybe easier even. So, I mean, sure, all of these builds always work 
work great in a vacuum, right, on paper in the lab. But your experience may vary widely once you get onto an actual battlefield. I feel like between Crusher, Telekinesis, and then Repelling Blast, when we really needed it, we should be able to get our enemies into our Cloud of Daggers more often than not. And since that's where most of our damage is coming from, especially in those first 10 or 12 levels, that's good enough for me. But you couple that damage with just the sheer joy and uniqueness of being able to dual-wield hammers on a warlock, while not having to worry about everyone at your table groaning whenever you throw down a bubble of darkness on the battlefield, or spend all of your feats taking the same old, same old polearm master and great weapon master feats, I would definitely prefer to play this build over Hexblade 1.0 any day. And hey, with the nerf to Great Weapon Master, it'll probably work better when the new Player's Handbook comes out in 2024 anyways. So that is the build for the week. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with this one. I gotta come up with a new catchphrase because I have a lot of fun with all these builds. <laughs> Surprising no one, but yes, I hope you guys know how much I love you. You're so awesome. Thank you for being here, for all that you do for me, for the channel. I hope that you will have a really great day and a fantastic week. And if you don't, that's okay. Hang in there. You got this. But I hope that you will be kind and do good and stay safe and that I see you again really soon. But until then, take care. Bye. El dejo dos lindos crios, una esposa valerosa y una selva de agonía. Cuando los ángeles lloran, es por cada árbol que muere, cada estrella que se apaga. Oh, no, no. Un ángel cayó. Un ángel murió. Un ángel se fue. Se fue volando en madrugada. Cuando los ángeles lloran, cuando los ángeles lloran, yo verá. There is a, uh, call them a rock band, I guess. Um, pretty popular in Latin America, anyways, uh, called Mana. M-A-N-A, Mana. Um, they're awesome. Even if you don't speak Spanish, like, the music is really fantastic. Especially if you are a fan of, like, 90s music <laughs> in the early 2000s. That was kind of their heyday. Anyway, super good. Check them out. That song is my favorite. Uh, maybe their most popular, I think. Uh, it's called Cuando los Ángeles Lloran, uh, When the Angels Cry. Anyway, it's really good. All right. I think I am ready. Oh, check, check. Yep. Mic looks good. Focus looks good. Placement of the pink light looks good. Um, King Arthur slash Thor looking good. All right. Hey, everybody. So here at D4, each week we take a deep dive into characters. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know my own intro. Three and a half years in. Um, hey, everybody. Here. <laughs> wow. The beginnings. The beginning's always so hard. It's like you just gotta get your brain in the right place, and you just have to screw up a few times before you can get there. Um, okay. Into one, sometimes two, well, actually, sometimes it's more than that. <laughs> okay, just making sure I didn't have sweaty pits there. <laughs> Channeling my best Taika Waititi. This is gonna take me a second to get right. I don't wanna look at the camera. Oh no, that's not what it's, oh, it's hard to say this with a straight face. Um, <laughs> oh, I wish I could do a New Zealand accent.
alas. All right, I think I'm done.